This time on Geek Pod Blue. I just found out that apparently love is what makes a Subaru a Subaru. Not Japanese technological advancement, but love, a human emotion that is not capable of feats of engineering. What a strange world we live in. Warning, station is now code blue. Welcome to this week's edition of Geek Pod Blue. I'm your host, Hugh, and somehow I did not see the fight this weekend, but still survived. Now, got an interesting story for you guys this week while I was researching the lead story. Uh, there is a lot of stuff from Wikipedia, and there's a lot of reading here, uh, because there are a lot of quotes from hundreds of years ago on this. So if you'll bear with me, I, uh, I found a very, very interesting story this week. And basically, it's about what really happened on June 26, 1284, in the German town of Hamlin. Now, you may be familiar with Hamlin as the setting for the Pied Piper of Hamlin, and you would be right. Now, while many authors, such as the Brothers Grimm, have weaved various tales of rats and missing children, it seems the truth is far darker and mysterious than we were told as children. In fact, apparently the Pied Piper of Hamelin is based on a true story, and I cannot tell you how much that shocked me when I ran across that. Now, to get you a little background here, the Pied Piper of Hamelin is a, uh, a legend from the town of Hamelin, uh, which is a in Germany, and it dates back to the Middle Ages. Uh, and the very early references uh, talk about a piper who's dressed in a very fancy clothing, who was a rat, rat catcher hired by the town to lure the rats away uh, with his uh, magic flute. When the citizens refuse to pay for the service, he gets back at them by using his flute's magical power on their children and leading them away as he had led the rats away. Now, this version of the story uh, was spread across the land as folklore and has appeared in many different writings, including the Brothers Grimm. Now, there are many contradictory theories about the, the Pied Piper. Uh, some say he was a symbol of hope. Some who maybe the town had been attacked by plague and he drove the rats from town. Interestingly enough, as we'll find out later, the rats were not originally in the first version of the story. Now, the earliest known record of this story is from the town of Hamlin, depicted in a stained glass window created for uh, their church there, which dates to around 1300. Now, the church was destroyed in 1660, but several written accounts of this tale and uh, some information about that stained glass window uh, still survives to this day. Now, the basic story is in 1284, they were suffering from a rat infestation, and this piper shows up, says he's a rat catcher, and he can, you know, take care of it as long as they pay him. So the mayor promises to, re to uh, pay him to remove the rats, uh, so he goes ahead and he plays his pipes and lures the rats into the river, where all but one of them drowned. Now, even though the piper was successful, the mayor decided, you know what, I don't have to pay him because the rats are gone, and uh, only paid him a, a, far less than he was originally supposed to get. Uh, some say he was supposed to get a thousand coins, uh, whereas he only received fifty. Uh, he, he even suggested that maybe the piper brought the rats in himself just so he could extort the town. Now, the piper was understandably upset, and he said he would uh, return later to take revenge. And on St. John and Paul's Day, while all of the people were in church, the piper returned uh, dressed in green like a hunter. 
Uh, what he did is he had played his pipe and he attracted the town's children. Now, 130 children uh, supposedly followed him out of the town and into a cave where they were never seen again. Now, depending on the version, um, at most, sometimes three children remained behind. Uh, one was lame and couldn't actually make the journey. Another one was deaf and couldn't hear the music. And the last one was blind and not able to see where they were going. These three informed all of the villagers what had happened when they came out of church. Other versions of the story relate that the Pied Piper led the children to the top of uh, a Koppelberg Koppelberg Hill, uh, where he took them to a beautiful plan, or Koppenberg Mountain, or Transylvania, or that he made them walk into the Wesser like he did with the rats, and they all drowned. Um, Some say that he even returned the children uh, later after payment, uh, but they had to pay him several times what he was originally supposed to get. Now, the earliest mention of the story seems to have been on this uh, stained glass window that we talked about before. Uh, around 1300, it depicted a group of children and a uh, oddly clad person. On the glass was an inscri- inscription that read, On the day of John and Paul, 130 children in Hamlin went to cavalry and were brought through all kinds of danger to the Coppin Mountain and lost. Now, interestingly enough, this uh, inscription says a, a, an oddly dressed fellow. It does not mention anything about a piper. Now, the window was destroyed in 1660, but there, there are drawings of it, and we have modern reconstructions of the window uh, to, to kind of you know fill in the gaps in the story. The window is also considered to have been created in memory of a tragic historical event in the town. Uh, the Hamlin records start with this event. The earliest written record is from the town chronicles in an entry from 1384, which says it's, it has been 100 years since our children left. Now, lots of research has been uh, done for a very long time, but no explanation for the historical event is accepted by everybody as true. Uh, In any case, the rats were first added to the story in a version from 1559 and don't appear in any of the earlier accounts. You have to think that that was probably added uh, for a narrative value of some sort. Now, if indeed a bunch of children did leave the town or were gone, there there are a number of theories... uh, the, the abound for that, and some of the natural causes are state that maybe you know what happened is that the piper was just a symbolic figure for death, and you know the the town had been struck by disease or something like that. Um, some of them have said that you know maybe they they were they were drowned in the river, or they were killed in a landslide. Uh, lots of different natural uh, causes for this. Some people even say that maybe they were lured away by some sort of occult uh, sect or faction. Uh, to to get out of the the town and were used in some sort of ritual sacrifice or something. Some of them have even even linked the disappearance of the children's to, and I thought this was very interesting, some sort of mass psychogenic illness in the form of something called dancing mania. And yes, dancing mania is actually a thing. Now, I did a little uh, research on this, um, and... This, this was very interesting. Uh, it's something that occurred uh, a very long time ago uh, in Europe and something that has not continued to happen uh, since then. Uh, what I'm going to do is I am going to give you from the Wikipedia page. Uh, Dancing Mania, also known as Dancing Plague, Choreomania, and St. John's Dance, was a social phenomenon that occurred primarily in mainland Europe between the 14th and 17th centuries. It involved people dancing erratically, sometimes thousands at a time, and affected men, women, and children who danced until they collapsed from exhaustion and sometimes died. Uh, One of the first outbreaks was in the Holy Roman Empire in 1374, and it quickly spread throughout Europe. 
uh, affecting thousands of people across several centuries, it was not an isolated event and was well documented in contemporary reports. It was nevertheless poorly understood and remedies were based on uh, guesswork. Sometimes they thought musicians would help ward off the mania, but this actually backfired and got them to dance even more. Other theories say that it might be religious cults who uh, were not allowed to hold their ceremonies uh, hid that behind um, these mass dances. Other people think that maybe they were dancing to relieve themselves of stress and the poverty uh, of the time. You know, it was it was a very rough time to live, and maybe this was just a way to let loose. I mean, I, I know most of us just like to go to the bar with friends. Other people like to dance for three days straight until they die. Um, whatever. It is, is what it is. Anyway, back to the story. Um, so they, some people thought that it was a uh, dancing mania was involved. Others suggested that the children might have been part of a pilgrimage or a military campaign. Uh, basically, there is something called a, a children's crusade that uh, was said to have occurred in 1212, uh, and maybe that they, they left as part of that. Uh, one gentleman by the name of William Manchester wrote a book called A World Lit Only by Fire, and he says that uh, maybe it was some kind of psychopathic pedophile. Now, it's highly improbable that... In that time period, somebody could have taken that many children, especially not all at once. And this gentleman doesn't offer a lot of proof, but you know that is one of the, the theories. Now, a theory that is, I think, seems to me to be the most likely uh, is the emigration theory. Now, um, right from Facebook, uh, I'm going to read about this. So basically, they're saying it's based on the idea that by the 13th century, the area had too many people resulting in the oldest son owning all the land and power and leaving the rest to serfs. And maybe they decided, you know what, we need to get some of our people out of here. So some of them may have been sold to recruiters from Eastern Europe or things like that. Uh, and they, they've done some research uh, in the surrounding areas to try to figure out whether you know some of these people might have settled in other lands. Now, if they had lots of children that they couldn't support, it's likely that they might have sold them. You know, and it looks like people from the area, including Hamlin, did help settle parts of Transylvania and uh, I believe Poland as well. Uh, the other interpretations is that they might have been recruited. Now, I, I, I didn't know about this, but there was something called a locator, okay? Now, a gentleman by the name of Jurgen Lodolf Uldorf says 130 children did vanish in June on that day, uh, and he entered all the known family names of the village at that time and started searching for matches out in other places. And he found the same surnames occur with amazing frequency in the regions of Prignitz and Uckermark, north of Berlin. He also found the same surnames in the former Pomeranian region, which is now part of Poland. Now, he surmises that the children were actually unemployed youths who had been sucked into the German drive to colonize its new settlements in Eastern Europe. The Pied Piper may never have exist existed as an actual piper, but he could have been something known as a locator who roamed northern Germany trying to recruit people to settle the East. Uh, some of them were brightly dressed, and they were all good salesmen, you know, carnival barkers, able to really talk. Now, he said he can show the Hamlin exodus should be linked with the Battle of Bornhoven 1227, which broke the Danish hold on Eastern Europe. Uh, this opened the way for German colonization, and by the latter part of the 13th century, there were systematic attempts to bring young people to places like Brandenburg and Pomerania. Uh, the settlement, according to the professor's name search, ended up near a place called Starogard and is now in northwestern Poland. A village near Hamlin, for example, uh, is called Bevergen, if I can get this right, has an almost exact counterpart called 
Beveringen near Pritzwalk, north of Berlin, and another called Berwingen near, again, Starogard. See, this is why I needed the Wikipedia article in front of me, because of these names. Um, very tough. Anyway, uh, local Polish telephone books um, list tons of names that are not typical Slavic names that you'd expect for the region. Many of the names are actually derived from German names, and they were common in the village of Hamlin in the 13th century. Uh, in fact, most of the, the names in today's Polish telephone directories include Hamel, Hamler, and Halnikow, which all derived from the name of the original village. So it seems like there is a lot of proof, or at least supporting evidence for the idea, that these children may have left. Now, some people say that maybe we're taking children too literally. Maybe, you know, a lot of times, you know, you will refer to uh, the people who live in a region, you'll, you know, the children of that region. You know, people say, you know, when they say France's children, they don't always mean the, literally the children. Sometimes they just mean the people that were born there. And maybe all of those children disappearing were actually adults or young adults uh, who emigrated out, who left the village, who uh, took up the offer to settle in other places, you know, for, for good payment and land and things like that. In fact, it's highly likely that that's where they all went. And of course, if you had a mass exodus of your young people from your village, you would absolutely commemorate that. And something like 100 years ago, our children left us would be something that you might actually find carved into uh, a stone or in a, a stained glass window, for instance. Uh, it certainly is understandable. Now, present day, Hamlin and the Pied Piper are still um, inexorably twined together. You know, there, there's no pulling it apart. Now, they certainly do a lot of uh, tourism based on it. And they do have, you know, they've had uh, tourist celebrations. In 2009, they had a festival to mark the 725th anniversary of the disappearance of the town's children. Uh, as oddly as that sounds, this brings up all sorts of uh, tourism opportunities and people who want to go there. Now, interestingly enough, it's noted that the day that the, the children, or the, not the day, but on the day the children disappeared, they walked down a street called Bungalow Zenstras. Okay, it's, it's called the street without drums, and apparently playing music or dancing on that street is still prohibited. Now, there's also a building that's uh, basically built just for um, visitors and tourists. It's called the Rat Catcher's House, and it doesn't have any connection to the Rat Catcher version of the legend. They are kind of using it to uh, promote tourism and get people to come in and check it out. I mean, I imagine it's kind of like you know you have Paul Bunyan standing in front of Enchanted Forest, but it doesn't actually, Enchanted Forest has nothing to do with the Paul Bunyan legend, even though that is a, a legitimate legend uh, from in that region. Now, in addition to that big festival they just had, every year the city marks June 26th as Rat Catcher's Day. And in the United States, oddly enough, a similar holiday for exterminators based on Rat Catcher's Day has not caught on, but they're trying to get it to catch on, and it's marked as July 22nd. Uh, I find this all incredibly interesting, that there's this much history behind something that I just thought was a fairy tale. Now, the moral of this story? Pay the piper, kids, or history might be trying to figure out what happened to you in a few hundred years from now. Now, on to some news, with decidedly less rats in it, because I am staying away from politics this week.
And your rat-free news is brought to you this week by me, because I have the time to do it. First up, Secret Empire has ended. Now, I don't know if you've been following this ridiculously long, uh, giant comic book story arc from Marvel. Uh, the Secret Empire told the story of Captain America turning bad and taking over everything. Uh, it's been under fire uh, for quite a number of reasons. First of all, because they took you know America's most beloved American hero and basically made him a fascist, uh, turned him into you know a Hitler, if you will. And uh, people have been very upset about that, but Marvel continued to say, you know, first of all, you can need to read the whole story. You need to see how it plays out. It'll all make sense. It'll come to a good end. Uh, we assure you this is the real Captain America. We're not going to pull any tricks or, you know, it was a fake Captain America or something like that. And this week, the final issue hit the shelves and Marvel basically lied about everything. Uh, they first of all lied about it really being Captain America. I mean, kind of, maybe, sort of, but not really. They also said it wasn't based on current events, which really seems kind of hard to believe considering the world that we live in these days. Now, it seems like Marvel was aware that this was not going to go over well, because on Monday they released a story to the media basically giving away the ending of Secret Empire. It seems like they were trying to get ahead of the uh, backlash of negative reviews that they were about to get. Now, I, I don't know if that was a smart thing to do, and I have read the issue, and I don't want to give away too many of the details about how it all plays out. And I will say... I mean, as a comic book, you know, when I read a comic book, sometimes I expect comic booky things, even though I hope for more from the medium because I know that it's capable of far more. It certainly ended like a comic book. Uh, I wasn't blown away. Kind of what I expected to happen, and that is disappointing considering all the buildup. I kind of wish that they hadn't gone out and said, oh, well, this is the real Captain America, and, you know, just need to see what happens. You know? They should have just let it go, because if they hadn't had all that build-up and made all those promises, it would have just been a, another big blockbuster storyline that ended as they all end, which is usually in generally badly. Now, I don't know how this is going to affect the rest of the Marvel Universe. We know that they have a, a sort of soft reboot coming up this fall, uh, which is going to uh, get things back to the way we're used to seeing the Marvel Universe. Uh, this did lead to a bunch of uh, Marvel Universe generation spinoffs, which is basically old and new versions of the characters ending up in the same story. And we did get an explanation for that, even though we've had a couple of those Generations issues pop up with no idea how these characters are interacting, sometimes with dead versions, old and dead versions of the same character. Um, we now know how that happened and why that happened, and that makes sense. It would have made a lot more sense had we seen the ending of Secret Empire prior to those issues coming out. Uh, but those are a nice way to take, for instance... All new Wolverine, which is Laura Kinney, and pair her up with not old man Logan, but actual, you know, younger old Wolverine who's been dead for a number of years now. So it, it, it's nice to see those kinds of characters interact. Um, new Hulk and old Hulk. Uh, I'm trying to think who else. I mean, there's a bunch of them. Uh, you know, it, it pick those issues up because they're certainly kind of heartwarming. And it, the whole point was kind of to help these new versions of the characters reconnect with what they're doing and why they're doing it. And that has been the most effective part of Secret uh, Empire is, as far as, you know, I can tell. And now I'm wondering if I called Secret Empire Secret War a few times in this this news uh, article because I actually started writing Secret War when I started writing this down. I guess you guys will have to tell me. Next up, it turns out Warner Brothers did not have plans for a Batgirl movie until Joss Whedon gave them his pitch. 
Uh, that's certainly interesting, and they apparently decided to run with it based on his uh, passion for the character. Uh, this is interesting in light of the uh, story that broke last week that we talked about. Now, we don't know uh, how his duties on Justice League and its potential sequels will affect the production of Batgirl yet. Uh, they have said that he is going to get a writing credit on the movie uh, as well, so it, it seems like he is... They're conflicting reports that you know he's completely changed the movie or he really just did a lot of dialogue. I guess we really won't know until we see the movie. And you know how we'll know? Um, if it, it makes sense in a clever, cohesive way, intelligently, then he probably did a lot of work on the movie. If it's just a bunch of fights and explosions, uh, then it's probably still Zack Snyder's vision. We'll have to wait and see what, what how that turns out. Uh, next up, Shazam has begun pre-production. Uh, now, Shazam is a, a very, very old comic book character, and uh, you guys probably know him. He's the guy with the big lightning bolt on his chest, and he's a little boy until he says Shazam, and then he turns into this big superhero. Now, David F. Sandberg uh, has confirmed that uh, you know he is, is the person directing this film, along with uh, some pictures that he posted uh, stating pre-production has begun. Uh, they are also going to use two actors to play Shazam uh, in Billy Batson. Now, it was uh, posited that they might use de-aging technology to do this, however, However, in an interview this week, he kind of said that that's just way too difficult to do. De-aging does work in some instances, you know, like, you know, Kurt Russell in Guardians and Michael Douglas in Ant-Man. The problem is trying to age back that far from a grown man to a little boy, as well as do it for a character that's going to be in half the movie or, you know, or, or close to it. You know, they just felt that while it might technically be possible, it's not worth the effort it would take and they're just going to use two actors now the interesting part of that is while they they certainly can do that and i think it's probably the best choice as the uh, franchise uh, moves on if it does move on and if it's part of the larger dc universe this young billy batson is going to get much older and that's going to make it harder to continue with this because he's kind of always a little boy in the comic books i i, I haven't read shazam extensively uh, but i don't recall him actually ever growing up so I'm not sure how they're going to deal with that. We'll have to wait and see. Um, next up, AMC has revealed that there is a new Walking Dead mobile game called Walking Dead Our World or Your World. I'm not quite sure. Um, maybe it's Walking Dead Real World. No, no, that, that would be the next season of the MTV show. That should be Real World, Real world Walking Dead. Uh, anyway, um, basically what it is, it's an augmented reality game kind of based on Pokemon Go. And a trailer was released this week, which... Uh, the trailer was great, and it makes me wonder how closely the actual game will, will match to that. They did seem to show people carrying their phones and walking around. Now, now here's the interesting part. Um, they were using the camera on the phone, and they could see that wherever they were. And, like, this one girl is in a store, and she's looking through the camera, and there are zombies, you know, like 3D zombies coming in the door. All of a sudden, a gun icon appears over by the, the cash register, and she runs over there, grabs the gun, turns around, and starts shooting at them. It looks like in first person, like a first person shooter. Now, that's interesting if that's the way they're going. I wonder if our phones, you know, anything but the most high end phones will be able to handle that at this point. I mean, it's a great idea in practice, but it seems like it would be very difficult to pull off on multiple devices. Uh, I'm hoping that it turns out that good because if it is, I mean, this this definitely could be a big deal. I mean, they were showing, you know, first-person battles in real-world locations using swords and grenades and then characters from The Walking Dead showing up, you know, in the nick of time to blast a zombie in the head, things like that. Uh, you should definitely uh, Google search it and check out the trailer because my description of it does not do it any sort of justice. You'll want to see this for yourself. And 
see if you think this is actually something that is viable. Um, finally, the first reviews for the Marvel's The Inhumans are starting to roll in, and they are not good, not positive at all. Uh, apparently, uh, people are saying all of the things that have made other Marvel shows good, the wit, the um, nifty, interesting themes, like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. kind of has the whole spy thing going for it. And Humans just doesn't seem to have anything going for it. It just goes from scene to scene. Um, it's being called boring. One person said that these first two episodes certainly didn't deserve an IMAX um, screening, and I'm not sure that they deserve to show up on your television either. Ouch. That is some serious... Uh, serious shade right there uh, for Marvels and Humans. Now, the rest of us uh, mere mortals who can't afford IMAX or don't get to see these things as part of the press are going to have to wait until the premiere on ABC. I have to say, though, my hopes are not high. Uh, conversely, uh, Marvel's Runaways, which is going to be premiering on Hulu, is getting rave reviews, overwhelmingly positive reviews. And uh, what people are saying is that it's kind of a mix of Riverdale, The O.C., and Gossip Girl, and be prepared for your next obsession. Now, that does not sound riveting to me, but hey, that's just my opinion. Your mileage may vary. And it is time for the GeekPod Blue Mailbox. Now, we are going to have a shortened letters section this week. Uh, I did reach out to uh, some of our regulars asking them to get some letters in early uh, because this evening I have a Meet the Teacher event at my daughter Avery's uh, brand new school this year. She's going to be going um, to the Latin school and we want to meet her teachers and all that since she you know, wasn't in that school last year. So I'm not going to have time to put this out this evening. So this is going out early. So if I missed any letters that are coming in later this evening, I am very sorry about that. I will certainly get to them next week. Now, this first letter uh, comes from Lady Laura, and Laura, I just want to tell you, you are lucky I saw this because you sent this to the wrong email. You sent it to hugh at geekpod.com. Now, I'm not sure if Paul set it up so that that automatically forwards to my personal Yahoo or if he forwarded it himself, uh, but yeah, I never checked that, so that's not a good address to send things. Um, definitely want to send it to geekpodblue at gmail.com if it is in reference to the show. So let me read this. It says... Morning, Hugh. Wow, you know, it's like she knew I'd be recording this in the morning. Man, she must be psychic or something. So I have a two-part question, maybe three. In your rock days, what was your favorite song to play, and where did you love to play it? Um, my two favorite songs, I have to say two favorite songs, um, only because they were such a blast, would have been um, Stabbing the Drama by Soil Work and... Uh, my, my last serenade, or last serenade, um, by Kill Switch Engage, and where I loved playing them would be anywhere we got to play them because they were just awesome songs. Uh, incredibly heavy. That's when I was playing bass and doing uh, some backup and some lead vocals. You know, going back and forth. We had a screamer in the band who handled the real heavy stuff because that particular iteration of the band I was in was uh, very, very heavy. It was kind of hardcore metal, uh, which is not what I did previously. I'd always done more like Pearl Jam stuff. Uh, but I was playing bass, and I was playing, you know, with my fingers because I was determined when I picked up bass. Hey, let me tell the whole story. So um, the guy who had been a guitarist uh, in in with uh, the band called Damaged Goods, his name was a Paul Allen, no relation, oddly enough. Uh, we had played for years together, and then, you know, things kind of, you know, everybody kind of went their separate ways. A few years go by, and he calls me up, and he's like, yeah, I'm starting a new band, and I need somebody to play bass. And I'm like, 
well, shit, why not? But I was determined that I was going to learn how to do it properly, you know, with your fingers rather than using a pick. So on day one, I started learning everything with my fingers. Now, um, songs, you know, by bands like Kill Switch and Soil Work, I mean, I, I think these guys use picks because some of this stuff is so ridiculously heavy and fast. Uh, but I played it with my fingers. And while it, it did take a little time to get that down, I, I think I caught on fairly quickly and I loved it. In fact, if I was going to start another band now, I would probably want to be on bass and vocals and do the same thing. So anyway, Paul brought me in and we did a bunch of heavy stuff, uh, which was a blast because I'd never really played that heavy and I'd never been in a band where I wasn't the lead singer. So I actually got to sit back and really work on the instrument, focus on what I was playing rather than trying to split my attention between the two. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. Uh, I will say my favorite place to play ever Oh, that's tough because there was a big outdoor festival whose name escapes me in Camden where, I mean, there was a, I don't know, three, four, five hundred people, something like that. Uh, but I, my probably my favorite one was playing a Halloween show at Sam's Lakeside opening for One Heart Crank. Uh, that was a blast. And, uh, you know, we, we've, we had kind of, uh, we knew those guys. We had, you know, played some shows, you know, and been in the same circles uh, for years, and getting to open for them first was great. I mean, yeah, they're a cover band, but they're a good cover band, and they're still out there playing. Uh, the other part was Sam's Lakeside was one of, I feel, the last great venues that we had in Syracuse. It's sad that it closed because it was great. You could go there for a buffet. You could bring the family there for a dinner. You could go there to watch country and rock bands or go up to the sports bar and catch the latest, you know, game and drink lots of beers. I mean, it, it was a perfect place, and... Uh, I think that it's sorely missed, and I feel like while we have some great venues now, there is no place quite like Sam's Lakeside. Next up, also, if you could play in any band with any musicians, dead or alive, who would they be? Well, you think I would say Pearl Jam, but I would actually go with uh, their precursor, uh, Mother Love Bone, which was Pearl Jam prior to Eddie Vedder joining the band. Uh, their lead singer, Andy Wood, um, died of a drug overdose uh, shortly before the, the release of their first big commercial album. And, uh, you know, they, they were all sad. They weren't sure if they were going to continue. They got together with a Chris Cornell, who was good friends with Andy and roommates, and they wrote Temple of the Dog. And uh, they brought in this um, surfer dude that they had uh, met named Eddie Vedder to sing backup vocals on a couple of the songs on that. And they hit it off so well, and the rest is history. They became Pearl Jam. But uh, while Pearl Jam's my favorite living band, Mother Love Bone is my favorite band of all time. And uh, I was a fan of them while they were active so I, I kind of was raised into the whole Pearl Jam thing because I was following them prior to that. And if I could play with any uh, band out there, I would probably want to play with those guys. Uh, finally, okay. And admittedly, this Mike person knows way more about geeky stuff, but much less about Geek Pod than I do. So we couldn't possibly be the same person. Uh, well, you could be acting anyway. Have a great day, Hugh, and see you soon at the Syracuse New York Comic Con at the SRC Arena in September. Shameless plug. That's right, Laura. I will see you there. Uh, Geek Pod is going to be on hand all three days. We're going to be moderating some panels, and who knows? We're still um, we're getting close, but we're still kind of in the planning stages, throwing stuff together. So we'll have to see what we can come up with. Let's move on to the next letter. That would be from Webcam Nick. Uh, Nick Mormon writes, thanks again for the birthday wishes. Nick, you are very, very welcome. He says, no, I'm not gay, but if I was, I could do a lot better than you, Mr. Blah. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, thanks for clearing that up, Nick. Um, and for the record, yeah, I get white girl wasted. Why do something if you're not, not going to do it all the way? Well, he kind of has a point there. I mean, at least he's committed. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna do it, do it all the way. 
All right. He says, you're going to love the rest of the Defenders episodes. I hope your family does as well. Oh, I started season 12 of Supernatural. I think it's awesome they brought Mary Winchester back. What are your thoughts on her resurrection? That's an interesting question, Nick. Um, I, I've been happy with it so far. Happy with the woman who's playing her. Uh, it's interesting that they brought back this character that has kind of been put on a pedestal for so many years and then have her kind of withdraw from her sons because she's having a hard time dealing with the fact that she's back, she's alive, the world has changed. Uh, I kind of thought that was genius because, you know, you'd expect it being supernatural. I thought, you know, she'd come back, they'd be all happy, and two episodes later they'd lose her again because they always seem to be putting those boys through awful, awful, horrible things. But, in fact, they kept her around and they kind of had her be the dick. Uh, now we know where Dean gets it from. I thought that was a brilliant move. Uh, it, it added a lot of uh, dramatic tension to the season, and now we're going to have to see, you know, where things go next season with her being, um, uh, let's say, pretty much kidnapped by Lucifer and brought into that other place, whatever that alternate reality was. I know this is sounding pretty weird for someone who doesn't watch the show. Uh, I, I would have loved to have, you know, of course, we, we want to see John. We want to see John Winchester back. I don't know if they'll ever be able to get uh, him back on the show, but you know, throwing Mary in there, it's good enough. They did a good job. And finally, Nick says, and do you think they will end the supernatural? Well, I think that they continue talking about it. And for years and years, they didn't talk about it. And they just said, we'll keep making it as long as we can. Now, it seems like every month there's a story about how somebody said something in the news about maybe we'll end here, maybe we'll end there. I, I think it's inevitable that they're going to end. Uh, we're, we're not going to see the, them gun smoke this, as Jared Padalecki once said, and uh, run it to 20 some odd seasons, uh, which I think is sad. But. You know, I, I guess that the thing that really bothers me about them, you know, ending the show, and, and this is this is selfish and it'd be a horrible thing, and I wouldn't even want to say this to the actors involved because I, I love them so much, but I love what they do so much. Um, at this point, I mean, by the time the show goes off the air, if it does, I mean, we're we're going to get to at least season fifteen. All right. They'll have been playing these same characters for 15 years. They've both already broke off and tried to start movie careers uh, that didn't really pan out. And I think that's a shame because they're both talented actors. And they, they should have been able to end this show at, you know, season six or seven and be, you know, making big movies by now. Uh, but at this point, they're probably too old to do that. Uh, they're too well-known and entrenched in these characters they will have been playing for 15 years to really have huge success beyond that. Now, generally what will happen is in a situation like that is they will go on uh, and do things behind the camera. You know, look at uh, Tom Welling after uh, 10 years of Smallville. He's been uh, doing shows for CW, you know, and doing a lot of stuff behind the camera, directing and such. Uh, I, I kind of feel like uh, if they are going to end the show, they shouldn't uh, end it in any kind of finality because uh, they really should leave it open and every year or so come back and do, you know, a Supernatural special. I mean, first of all, because it's been part of what is the CW and used to be, you know, UPN. It's been there forever. It's something the fans will always come back to. The actors will probably want to leave that open because I, I don't think that... I think this is probably the highest profile gig they're likely to ever get. And that's not a bad thing because they are permanently etched in fandom. They will always have a convention circuit where they can make tons of money at meeting their fans and talking to them. I mean, that's a great thing for them. I, I guess it just makes me kind of sad because to, to have them end something and not then not go on to do bigger things, uh, 
especially if they were to end it prematurely or if it could have gone on further. I guess it depends on, you know, their feelings on it, though. If they're sick of the show, I, then it's probably time to end it. I think I've been rambling about the ending of Supernatural too much. Um, I've thought about um, that whole thing about how I don't think they'll go on to do more, but I never really wanted to voice it because I feel like it's very disingenuous. And, um, I mean, it makes me sound like a dick, uh, but I'm pretty sure I'm kind of right about that, and I'm fairly sure history will prove me right if they do end the show. And that is going to wrap things up for this week. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the story, the true story, I should say, of the Pied Piper of Hamlin. Make sure you tune in next week when we are going to go live to Texas to cover the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey so that I can talk about the size of my audience. Till then, talk and roll, kids. GeekPod Blue is a GeekPod Network production. Executive producers Paul Showens and Hugh Allen. Concept created by Paul Showens and Hugh Allen. Intro is Opportunity by Jameis Breed. Closing is Bucket by Jameis Breed. Both licensed for use by Dennis Johnston. Want to help the show? Leave a five-star rating on iTunes. GeekPod can be reached at contribute at geekpod.com or send us a tweet at geekpod. That's G33KPOD. You can also find GeekPod on Facebook and Instagram. G33KPOD. That's G33KPOD.